Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity, Where You Are. I'm Sean Atkinson, and I'm joined by the host with the most, Tony Sager. Tony, how are you, sir? Uh, great, thank you, Sean. Great to be back on with you. Fantastic. And we're also joined with our special guest, Stephanie Gass. Stephanie, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Sean. Wonderful. Stephanie, why don't you just give us a, a brief um, background uh, on your role here at CIS and, and your uh, experiences in a topic that we're going to discuss today. And this is understanding cybersecurity risk governance. So, Stephanie, over to you. Sure. So I have been working at CIS for almost five years now. I started as the information security auditor uh, to help align CIS with SOC 2 requirements, FISMA requirements, and ISO 27001. Uh, through the last five years, we have been working very successfully through our SOC 2 Type 2, our ISO certifications. We were certified last year, and we continue to work on our FISMA process as well as NIST 800-171. We also are looking to expand to include more operational-based audits as we move forward, as well as doing continuous audits. And now I am currently the director of the GRC program. I have one manager and a auditor on the team to assist in the governance. Absolutely. A glutton for punishment, I think, Tony, with all of those certs and attestations. Absolutely fantastic. And just... Uh, I like to think impact. of that as uh, she's multilingual in all these <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, programs and frameworks and, you know, having plowed through some of them in the early days, just just the complexity of the language, right? And the different levels of abstraction and, you know, sort of each of them. And my, my, I remember I used to joke in the early days, like, you know, when the auditor comes in and they want to sit with you for a week or whatever, and, you know, you go through all this work and all this data gathering and presentation, the next one comes in the next week and, you know, they want all the happies changed to glad and the reds to change to yellow in language. And, you know, and they're talking like an entirely different uh, set of uh, expectations and reporting, you know, what does the output look like? And it's just this massive tower of Babel. And so, yeah, all credit to you, Stephanie, for being able to navigate that. And, you know, I think that's part of the, the reason for the episode is for us to explore this, right? This is, this is real life, not only for the Center for Net Security, but for many of our listeners here. That is, this is uh, something we have to think about and deal with in a day-to-day basis, right? You can't just sort of react to it. You, in fact, have to have a plan. So we hope we can explore some of those ideas uh, in this episode and perhaps others. Absolutely. hundred percent. And it was, um, I'll just give you some of the backstory as well. So when I'd first started with the organization, obviously the solid foundation upon which this rock uh, exists is the CIS controls. So that was a controls first approach. And then as we became and really wanted to adapt and build in governance capability, it was where do we need to address our role in the wider market. And it was really to attest 
to external assessment. So ultimately, I um, uh, needed um, a uh, a versed person in that space. So Stephanie, um, here's a role. What do we think we can do here? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, um, her program and, and the GRC capability that we've now implemented it is absolutely phenomenal, allowing us to have uh, uh, see a lot of success in the space. But you know, Tony, without going too far because I, I need to give you, uh, I, again, I owe you money for this, but a, a fog of more of all of the alignment here is, uh, I, I say, uh, just for our listeners and Stephanie, I have to say it every episode because it's, the, it's I think I'm contractually required in this podcast to do it, but Tony, that where it leads me, right, you know, it's multilingual, but it's also the ability to adapt, adopt, map, and integrate all of these requirements into really a functioning program that you want to be security first versus compliance only, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think so, Sean. And, you know, there's, there's a, I don't know if you ever see my riff, uh, what I call the defender's dilemma. Yep. It's part of my presentations, right? You know, you have to figure out what to do, the technical issues, the attacks, the technology, the business risks and so forth. Uh, you have to do it, right? You have to operationalize, buy stuff, train, implement. I said, but the real uh, energy eater to me is the third part of the dilemma, which is I have to prove to others that I've done the right and responsible thing, whatever that means in their context. Yep. And so that's what's really evolved over the last few years. And is the world that Stephanie you know, lived and talked about, which is this, you know, I, I can't afford to just react to them all. At the end of the day, I'm trying to build good security. And, you know, if you could conceptually wave a ma magic wand, you'd say, I want to spend 80% of my energy on sort of figuring out and doing the right thing, right? Part one and two. And I want to spend as little energy as possible, with all respect intended, sort of proving to others I've done the right thing. Well, you can't do that unless you've sort of done the right thing, right? You really have a solid program and you build upon it. And yeah, you know, there's never going to be one framework to rule them all, at least not in my professional lifetime. This is part of what enterprises have to deal with. And so having someone who thinks about this in a strategic way you know, how do we improve our security? What is, you know, what is our management's uh, uh, rationale and thinking and decision-making around risk is a really core and uh, important fundamental activity, which is going to be represented in multiple ways, right? So to do that efficiently is, you know, is the task that you and Stephanie have in front of you. And I get, you know, let me offer credit back to you. I owe you a, a buck for every once in a while. <laughs> just, just the, um, just to be able to watch this happen, right? When I joined the company, to see the professionalization of risk, I might call it that, right? This idea, and um, let, let's reveal a secret here, Sean. I hope we don't get in trouble here, but Please. you know, uh, risk. Uh, I'm not sure we were any better than anyone else, frankly, at, at sort of risk management several years ago in this company, and yet we are a security company, right? It's in our name, and so we have a responsibility to to uh, to do a good job at it, right? and to make sure that our learning is reflected in the advice that we give to others. And that's something that's really different here when I was at the National Security Agency. You know, it's great to give people advice when your networks are behind concertina wire and they're not connected to the internet. You know, you, know, you, you can say really wise things that have no relationship to real life. And that was sort of the dilemma I often found myself in back there. But here we have to live it, right? So, you have to, so watching you build a program, bring in folks like Stephanie to kind of think this through, but also I'd love to hear kind of the exploration of the relationship with both our management and our board. At the end of the day, this is about good, good 
governance, right? How do we manage ourselves? And in a lot of ways, the controls did not deal with that. It was really focused on the technology, the attacks, what are the actions we need to take? And whenever someone would ask me, well, what do you recommend for governance? You know, back in the Bronze Age of the controls, I would say, well, that's a really hard problem. <laughs> and there's lots of different, there's so many different governance activities. There's no way to answer it with one sort of 20 page document or a, you know, a straightforward thing. So exactly. maybe, maybe we'll let Stephanie chew on that a little bit on the, how do I take sort of technical advice and uh, beyond the implementation, represent it well for all these different uh, folks looking over your shoulder, the auditors, the frameworks, the regulators, et cetera. Yeah, sure. So as I think about this, I'm looking at it more from understanding what, how we make decisions, right? You can't really have governance without defining how you make those decisions, whether it's through cybersecurity risk or various programs, but we need to be able to manage that risk. Um, and in order to do that, we need to have policies and standards in place. And you can have as many policies and standards in place, but it's also important to know that you actually have to implement them, not just having them written down. I mean, it's the foundation and it gives people guidance, but at the end of the day, you really need to be able to follow through on those policies and standards, mm -hmm. and you need to be able to communicate the risks to the organization uh, where risks exist. Um, and then it also helps you define your priorities and your processes, any metrics, you know, how much risk are you really willing to accept as an organization? And how do we implement anything where there's risks that we're not willing to take, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I think what, again, as an observer of this process, Sean and, and Stephanie, uh, you know, so again, from the naive, you know, technical practitioner point of view, it was like, well, you know, we're, we're going to do the right thing technically, and then we'll just, We'll have governance, right? It'll, it'll all be, it'll all kind of after the fact take care of itself. But what you described, Stephanie, you actually have to change the way the company makes decisions, right? Yes. You have to push it back into the leadership. And tell me a little bit about the challenges of that. Because again, a lot of that, as I observed it, was pretty informal, you know, like many other companies are when you came on board. And so it's not enough to say, okay, we have a program to respond to whatever governance framework. It's we have to change the way we make decisions, we have to put it back into the leadership. Any of the any observations from your your challenges there? What what was easy or hard about that in terms of you know the company needs to formalize this or be more rigorous about that or et cetera? I, I think it's a cultural shift in an organization when you're really okay. switching to actually a more governance based process. Mm -hmm. um, everybody's very technical and understands the technical processes, so that's great. But when you come, when it comes down to actually the governance piece of it, um, I think there's a lot of I want to own this process, and that, and in order to manage the risk in the organization, there can't be that siloed effect that happens when you're talking about technical controls. So I think that was probably one of the bigger challenges is working with all the business units and working with the leads to really try to get them to understand that this is for CIS as a whole and we're not trying to silo out any business units or processes. It's a collective effort. 
Absolutely agree. I, I think also I'd throw in there as well, Tony, is the framing of the thoughts in the space as well. Because in a lot of cases, when you mention or I'll go through cybersecurity risk governance, let's let's use that as a topic. That's a technical problem, right, Sean? No, 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 no. This is a business problem. And that's where Stephanie brings in this cultural element to frame it in a way that's not a technical issue. But it's holistic. It, it's more than that, right? It, it permeates different layers of the business through both process management and, and obviously data management. And one of the overlays that we've found, and again, this is a testament to Stephanie's work, is the privacy regulations. So those are now abundant, right? You, you, you don't mm -hmm. go a day without hearing either a new or a more advanced one coming through. And ultimately, it's using that to frame the practice of appropriate management with that that then reflects ultimately an exposure risk, a threat risk, um, really looking at our mitigation and treatment strategies that we have to apply. And in some cases, are we using that as, you know, the ephemeral hammer, as it were, to we've got to, you know, kind of knock this into the, the consciousness of the organization. Uh, and in some cases it is, but it's more of an awareness issue that it's not just um, a system, it's not just a screen and a keyboard, it's, it's way more, it's about the understanding of the decision-making processes framed with reference to the appropriate approach using governance as a way to help build the rules of that decision-making, as it were. And as you get into it, and, and one of the, uh, and as we talk about working with the board as well, um, Tony, is the appetite and tolerance discussions. Now, the framing of those is very, very interesting approach that we've, yeah. um, you know, addressed. And you have to, because uh, to Stephanie's point, there's a contextualized approach to risk where, you know, representatively, we could come in and say, nope, we, we're, we're, um, uh, we're not going to mitigate that risk. We're not going to accept it. We're going to avoid it completely and not even do any business in this space. And it's, hold on a second, we've got to reflect that to a business context as, is that realistic? And so we went through, you know, a lot of different framing in that space to really get to uh, what I call a tuned approach. We, we've got the right note now, but over time that note, you know, needs to be um, reassessed, as it were, in terms of making sure it's back in tune with the organization, because there is a frequency the organization works and we want to make sure that we uh, we match that with respect to our underlying program as well. Yeah, I think part of the the challenge, so so I grew up in the, I'll call it the uh, strategic risk avoidance world, <laughs> you know, so it's the world of the late 90s. I remember the early days of sort of red teaming in the DOD across the defense department. And the idea was people, okay, we should have testing and so forth. For example, during a big military exercise. And what happened was, oh, the red team test is actually disrupting the exercise. And so let's, let's stop that so we can get on with the real work of conducting the exercise, right? Of moving expensive and dangerous things around in the ocean and all the stuff that goes with that. And, and that was a, an older way of thinking of it, right? That is sort of the cyber risk is different than the mission risk. And the world you're describing is what we really have been, I think, as an industry moving towards is there is a strategic level of risk for the company that you can't separate out the sort of technical parameters of, you know, so forth from the, what am I trying to accomplish, right? Whether it's a mission objective for a government agency or the military or a business objective, you have to look at them that way. So that says then you have to have a basis for comparison, you know, a way to sort of put cyber risk, 
into the same context, right, as other types of risks for the board. So I think, uh, so like, what about the role of quantification in that, uh, either Sean or Stephanie? I mean, that is, how does that, is that helpful? Or is it, you know, sometimes it, I've worked with lots of quantification jocks, as they call themselves over the years, and it's so easy to get lost in the equations and the numbers yeah. and sort of lose sight of things. But how does, and yet quantification seems like a natural path for comparison, right? That is, I could sort of estimate the probability of a certain kind of business loss. Yeah. And I'd love to be able to compare, you know, is the next dollar best spent on sort of managing cyber risk or managing reputational risk or financial risk, et cetera. What about this sort of quantification? In this yeah, case? it's good. And you're absolutely right, Tony. I mean, the, the quantification piece is the um, next layer advancement, but in of itself is not the solution to the problem, mm-hmm. right? So we have quantification, but like you say, you can get lost in the numbers and then you use that as strictly the decision-making framework and and that's wrong what you have to do is basically you like you mentioned you have quantification and ultimately you know we were in the world of the heat map so i could have two risks that are relatively the same in terms of positioning uh, in an ordinal scope and completely different in terms of the prioritization and the money's expended where does that next dollar go to your point um and you can't do that in that space um i mean you can but it's you know in if you've got two decisions to make you're basically tossing a coin to see which one wins and and that's what you go with and that's not the approach so the quantitative allows again appropriate measurement alignment to uh, a ratio of understanding actual dollars and cents that make sense from both the business context of threat, but then also where we can use underlying Monte Carlo simulation and the fair analysis capability that we're applying here um, to address the the overall exposure of those representative risks, which one requires prioritization, which one potentially could have an impact in in the future. But without the context and and from the... um, and it really comes about from a a study or a, at least an analogy that's used in the fair training methodology is the bald tire. So you have, uh, you know, a bald tire on a swing. You know, what's the asset at loss? What's the risk to it? Well, nothing. It's just a tire on a swing. Well, now the rope is frayed. Now, does that change your approach to the tire? Well, no, the tire has little value to me. I don't care if the tire, you know, falls off. Um, the tire is actually a tire swing. So I'm, I'm putting children onto the swing. Now does the asset, well, yes, you've, you've got a ball tire, you've got the, the, uh, the swing and the branch, the limb that it's attached to is loose. Does that change your perspective? Yes, it certainly does. And so these things allow us to then ask questions. In a lot of cases, maybe the five whys of this risk matters to the organization aligning it to contextual approaches. But without quantification, I'm asking those same five why questions really potentially against all the risks in an underlying risk register. And that's not where we need to spend our time. We want to look, prioritize, use quantification to, you know, basically show me the the highest level risks within the organization. Therefore, we can make a decision that's appropriate And ultimately, in some cases, we can look at the return on the underlying security investment to see um, that dollar spent here will return and ultimately uh, a mitigation strategy that brings this amount of protection to the organization, i.e. the adoption of a control that will uh, ultimately assist in creating uh, a better defensive capability. Fantastic. 
but getting to that point of how that return on security investment, you know, we have very specific scenarios that point us back to, we'll focus on the data, right? If we do data loss and we have data exposure, well, data breaches is the biggest thing that we see for the organization. That's our biggest threat. Okay, well, what about now if I change that to ransomware? Well, it's the stored data, so we better make sure we've got these backups and we want to put the money into resiliency of our underlying infrastructure. Well, which one is it? And again, from a from an ordinal scope or a, um, a heat map, those two risks may be aligned directly, but we've got to split them and use the quantitative approach to see, well, where's the dollar should be spent in the space? And again, align that to an underlying threat model where we see the biggest risk to the organization. Long-winded, Tony, but yeah. uh, I thought it deserved yeah, at least some I think, explanation. I think, and uh, Stephanie, I'd be interested in your perspective. So sometimes, you know, once you go that quantification route, I have the impression, I'm just saying, from a number of decision makers I've dealt with in my past, they're sort of looking for the numbers to save them. You know, the, the magic number that will pop out, right? Oh, this one's 97 and this one's, you know, 87 and therefore. But what you're describing, Sean, is really about using the numbers to get you to the place where you can make rational judgment calls, right? Where you can decide where to accept responsibility. There's not magic in the numbers. There's, there's rigor in the thinking to get you to that point. And at the end of the day, this is about decision making, not about uh, the, the numbers purely, right? And the difference between the 97 and the 87 in, in the case, that may not be sort of worth the arguing. It's really about the decisions and the context and all that kind of stuff. And so, Stephanie, uh, I, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been, it was, again, in the early days of this, um, hearing a decision maker going, you know, listening to all the evidence and all the, the security wonks and the IT people and the mission people all arguing, and, uh, and they just say, I accept the risk. I will sign the paper, the certification. And I, and I go, oh, how sad. They're not doing that because they're knowingly making a wise choice. They're doing it out of frustration. They can't figure out how to make sense of all this. Is that still the world that we're in? or Because you're, you're, we're actually much I, more structured than those days. Right. But I think to an extent, people do look towards the numbers. And I think one mm -hmm. thing with governance people should take into consideration is your governance program should be tailored and looked at regularly to make sure you're keeping up with any current risks and be agile enough to gotcha. adapt to anything that's coming up in the future, right? So if you're looking at it from that perspective, you can't just look at the numbers. You also have to look at what's going on around you. You have to look at what companies are getting fined and what are they getting fined for? Is that something that can impact your company? And you have to build that case to show, hey, we have this problem. This is what we anticipate our impact would be. But however, based on the current trends, it suggests that the exposure or the dollar amount is significantly higher than what we initially anticipated. Yeah. So I think being able to keep your program pretty adaptable to the current and future environments is critical. Yeah, that's a great point, Stephanie. And, and you know, what you're what you're highlighting, I think, is yeah, there's a decision to be made, right? Because if you don't sure. make decisions, the business doesn't operate. But every decision is dependent upon a number of either assumptions or a specific set of data or a particular context. And what you've created now is a th set of things that have to be watched, right? Our, our decision is dependent upon certain assumptions about, you know, the the, the uh, expected potential loss and things like that. And so, so there's an ongoing conversation. Again, I've watched, you know, you two and your team develop over the years, which is 
uh, it's not about the event. It's about the process of, you know, supporting decision-making, right? Bringing the management to sort of be able to see this in that context, but also identifying things that have to be regularly resampled or, you know, what are our sensors into that world, right? What are the variables that we need to be monitoring that would allow us to continually uh, understand our risks? And I think that's a now, again, I struggled with this. So I grew up in the sort of crypto device days at the National Security Agency. So the early experiences that I had in this sort of you know high risk certification, or we use various terms for it over the years, was around cryptographic devices. And, you know, very high risk, lots of money, lives at stake, all those kinds of issues. And uh, you know, as I got to the middle of my career and got to be a participant in that, started to see, you know, at the end of the day, the decision was made on a giant pile of paper. You know, things that flew around, did it, went through the math people and the engineering people and the threat people, and it all came in front of the boss. And of course, this is a massive pile of paper, very complex, all these issues. And and the bottom line was the discussion came down to, you know, has Tony read this thing? Has Kurt read this thing? You know, it was the sort of like verbal confidence that had been through the process and it became a signature. And the boss got really consumed, you know, and Hey, that might have worked in the 80s, you know, when it took you 10 to 15 years to develop a new radio for the U.S. Army, but it doesn't make much sense today. And the boss was on this kick, uh, rightfully, I won't name names here, but of, you know, I'm willing to, to make, we need to make decisions faster. And I'm willing to accept more risk as a decision maker so that we can do that. Great, boss. Right on. That's the right thing. The problem is this, boss, right, to make decisions faster you're going to have to take more risks as the decision maker. And we are not very good at identifying. So what was your, what were the dependencies of your decision? What were the factors, the technology, the knowledge of attackers, the business use of that technology that are, that really affect that security decision. We don't track that over time, the way you guys just described, we do it for a company, right? That is, so we, if we're going to make decisions faster, we're going to, make a decision that six months to a year later doesn't look really smart because something has changed. So we have to identify upfront the things that are really important to that decision so that we're continually tracking. And then therefore we understand, hey, the world changed in a year. We got smarter, we got better, technology improved. That's life. But what decisions have I made in the last two years that were dependent upon assumptions that are no longer true? That's the world that you guys have to navigate today, right? And that, that's what you just described is this, this sort of dynamic decision-making process, this ongoing sort of relationship with, with trust, right? How do I, what were the factors that led me to make a decision? If I don't make decisions, I don't have a business, I don't have a mission. And so how do I do that? So I think that that, that was a, you know, kind of sort of the evolution as I watched it, you know, from kind of when I grew up to the world that you guys are navigating today. No, that's awesome. I mean, it's, you're absolutely right, Tony, because it's the velocity of the decision-making today, completely different, mm. right? You know, the, the, the uh, context of those decisions also changes. And like you say, you, you can do the retrospective of, um, you know, that was not a smart decision or it was a great decision. Um, and I just look and I always use this one, Tony, is the um, our decision to build out a capability that would allow us to be 100% remote before the pandemic hit. I mean, that's gold, right? Mm -hmm. We were on-prem one day, the next, it was seamless, absolutely brilliant. And so, oh, that was a great decision-making process. How can we reenact or utilize that same process for future decisions? Because that was the good one. 
and ultimately there are you know bad decisions that we uh you know that we uh, foster as part of doing and being part of respectfully the environment we currently exist it's one that we constantly have to adapt to and uh again if we can use the lessons uh and it, stephanie always mentions this and i love it is it's lessons identified not lessons learned because we don't know if we've learned them yet so let's put that into <laughs> practice and make sure we do learn those lessons i think that's uh, another great uh, one that she, she excellent okay we we owe her a dollar for that one that's exactly clever. <laughs> <laughs> i think and a lot of that is uh let me ask stephanie about the role of i'll say company culture in this process right that is again it's, it doesn't always come down to the cold hard numbers or you know running the right process but you know the acceptance like sean gave the example of uh, going you know as a company going remote you know, it, there was heroic work over a weekend preceded by a lot of work in the prior year, right? To put in place capacity, visibility, et cetera, that allowed a heroic weekend to happen. So it wasn't the one thing, it was lots of things. And a lot of that was about sort of the attitude and the, what, you know, what the company chose to value. How important is that to the kind of things that when you present this evidence, Stephanie, or the way you get support for your program? I actually think that's pretty critical to get the buy-in. One, leadership needs to buy-in. There's a huge trickle-down effect that I think is overlooked sometimes when it comes to cybersecurity. And that trickle-down effect, if your leadership buys in, it's a lot easier to get the rest of the organization to buy into it. So it's really a top-down approach. There are a lot of people throughout the organization right, that take security very seriously you know, there, I think we also have established a culture here that's a very open door. So pretty much anybody comes to us and says, hey, I just want to get your thoughts on this from a security or a privacy perspective. Let's walk through this. So creating that open door culture where it's not like, oh, no, you did something wrong. It's how can we improve our current processes as well as understand the decisions that go into that. So I think it's a couple of factors there. So you have the buy-in from the leadership. You have the openness and willingness to work throughout the organization and the business units and not really necessarily be a blocker, although sometimes you do have to be a blocker, um, but really getting them to understand the importance behind it and what it means to our members and our customers and them as employees. What kind of impacts can it have on you? And being able to relate it to that, I think, is more digestible for the organization and it changes the culture over time. So it's definitely not something that's going to happen overnight. Uh, it's going to take a while, but I think those are some key elements to foster that growth in an organization. Yeah, that's sort of like a microcosm of the security problem overall, right? That is, our security, people, our security people are holding us back. You know, why don't they let us do whatever? And you're, you're looking at that at the company level, right? That is, look, privacy regulation, for example, is a way of life. Yes. We don't get to avoid it by ignoring it. Better to have a conversation early and often about what does this mean then for our data strategy? What does this mean for our IT management? You know, how do we build this in uh, so that we're not trying to solve the problem after we've already decided what the architecture, for example, should look like? I think that is, and that is clearly a cultural activity, right? That is, and you know, I, again, I grew up in where the security people, you know, the, the role I had, we were the enforcers, we're the 
carriers of the torch. You know, we're, we're there for goodness and light and, you know, to point out all the flaws and, uh, you know, you guys go back to the drawing board because we're, we're so clever here and, you know, shifting the focus to say, no, we have to recognize there's never a pure security answer. That answer is in the context of, you know, we, we could we could spend 50 years trying to design perfect security. Meanwhile, everyone's doing something worse. You know, the, the, we're creating more risk at the corporate level. So I think that is. So let's talk about the then the, the world that um, we live in today. Right. There's no neat, nice, nice, neat boundary around company risk anymore. We're all hopelessly interlocked with suppliers, with uh, partners, and so forth. And in that sense, CIS is no different than you know everyone else out there. What about this whole the issues, uh, the hot issues of like uh, supply chain, third third parties, and so forth? Uh, you know, share with the, the listeners some of the challenges that we've navigated there and what we're doing about it. Yeah, I'll jump in and then I'll uh, hand over to Stephanie for the program that she's developed um, Hmm. in the organization. So as you mentioned, Tony, we are step interlocked with respective organizations from who we are as part of an underlying supply chain and ultimately those that we're uh, reliant upon them for underlying service. And, you know, there's elements coming from this CSF and others where, you know, we look at supply chain risk management and try to identify and manage respectfully those organizations and who we respectfully with the dollar that we're spending is going to a reputable organization that's going to deliver on the underlying service uh, following the contractual uh, engagement requirements and uh, doing it in such a way that, you know, provides us the underlying value that we seek to use it as, as a catalyst to, you know, boost our underlying capability as well. So with that, we have to assess a few things is um, one, um, the organization itself, really from a governance program, do they govern themselves in a way that we see conducive to a respective organization? We respectfully ask questions. We have a third party risk questionnaire that we ask for, for them to complete in terms of us understanding their approach um, to security, privacy, governance, uh, and ultimately the overall condition of the organization as a viable entity that we want to respectfully do business with. Mm-hmm. And as we go through that approach, it's then looking, and again, one of the reasons why we entered and Stephanie built you know, our SOC 2 compliance program, the ISO program, is those are used to attest a certain level of responsibility, a certain level of capability, and the willingness to take those on to be part of this representative supply chain. So through that approach, we entered uh, and basically can attest, provide uh, basically an underlying resiliency And in some cases, it's, you know, you see it differently from different organizations. Um, I'll just give a couple anecdotes and then throw it over to Stephanie with just these scenarios that we've reviewed. Some are, we're not filling this out. Um, Ultimately, uh, you know, if you want to do business with us, you can. If not, find an alternative. Fair enough. I I get your approach is is not necessarily aligned with what we want to do as an organization. Mm -hmm. That's fair. That moves forward. And then some you'll get, uh, you know, the the aggressive approach. Well, I want to see your pen tests. I want to see all of your policies. I want to see this. And it becomes the the big stack of paper, respectfully, um, Tony, of who's reviewing that? I mean, respectfully within an organization, I'd need 
not me, but really our team, Stephanie would need probably 20 people to be able to do that for all of our vendors. And it's, where's the value add in terms of seeing that? And, and ultimately, I'm sure there are some organizations that catalog, review, do assessments, and in some cases, update their programs based on what they see in others. Fantastic. Let's share the knowledge, but it, let's do it in a way that's not holding respectfully the carrot in front of everybody to, oh, to do business with me, that this is uh, everything that we need for, for uh, to do your evaluation, your assessment. And then you also look at assessment organizations, those that have this as a function uh, that you can procure. Mm -hmm. And just the, um, I think ultimately there's a standardization needed within that respective industry because you'll look at respective risk numbers that they produce and they are, none are consistent that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, and again, maybe I'm being a little pessimistic in that approach, but there is no consistent approach to an underlying assessment from organizations, which, you know, leaves your decision making up to, well, do I trust that organization or this organization? And that becomes an assessment of them in terms of representing our best interests and which one of those has it. And so it, there's a balance piece. But anyway, Stephanie, let me throw it over to you. I'll throw it over to the true expert in this space. Yeah, so we currently have our vendor management team is really a cross-functional process. So we have legal involvement, IT involvement, procurement, and information security and privacy. So it's really a collective of the teams. We all have different requirements. We all go through the contracts. We all look at the products and services that are being offered. We want to understand, does it fit within our environment? Does this align with our strategic goals and objectives? Um, we also want to understand the impacts on the privacy, right? We look at geopolitical uh, risks as well involved in that. Um, we want to be mindful of the current environment that we're working in because a vendor is good this year doesn't mean next year they're going to be good. Um, it means that vendors, you know, they change, right? They undergo leadership changes. They undergo um, acquisitions. So we wanna be mindful of that. So when we identify our critical vendors, part of the review process is really to understand what about their environments changed once we've accepted them as a vendor, right? Um, because a lot of things can change. And I think that is a struggle that a lot of organizations are like, oh, here's this risk questionnaire, just fill this out and everything's gonna be fine. Mm -hmm. But you need to look at what your organization needs, right? You need to understand the strategies and the goals that the organization needs to function. And when you're doing that, you have to look at your vendors because your vendors may not align with your mission anymore. They may not align with your company's objectives. Um, you may have outgrown a company, right? There's a lot of maturity levels that happen within organizations. And as you're growing, vendors tend to change and your needs change. So when you're kind of going through that process, I think it's very interesting. We also do an open source review. So an open source intelligence review, uh, we have a risk assessor that does that. He's fantastic, um, but he, it's a really a risk briefing, not only for our teams to utilize, but for our business units, because we want the business units to also understand their security concerns. We want them to look at it. We want them to address the recommendations that we have. Um, so we want to get the business unit involvement as well. 
because they're at the end of the day, the ones that are really interacting with the vendors. So we also want to understand, are the vendors meeting our needs? You know, do we have SLAs in place? Are they meeting those SLAs? You know, has anything changed in the contracts that we are rolling over? Just really understanding all of it together. I think it's a much larger process than just looking at a questionnaire. And that questionnaire helps guide you to decisions, but it's not the end of the day either, right? That's not going to give you your answer. It's getting the buy-in of the vendor management team as a whole, the business units, understanding what it means to the organization to continue with this vendor, to take on this vendor, or to leave the vendor, right? Um, So we try to be very efficient about it. Sometimes, you know, we can't be. We rely a lot on vendor participation in this process. It's not just one-sided. So we have vendor participation that's required. You know, we may need to hop on calls with them to really understand their their processes. We want to understand what they're doing with our data. Are they taking our data? Is it now their ownership or is it something we still maintain ownership and they're really just you know, holding that data for us. So trying to understand the landscape and the use cases is critical in the vendor process too. And that's another thing that needs to be looked at when you're looking at vendors is can this use case change? And if it does, how are you going to be able to track that change? Um, Because a vendor may be approved for a certain use case, but it's not applicable to the organization as a whole. So I mean, I think this whole I, I, the, the tech term I made up one day was this sort of dynamic renegotiation of trust. You know, that, that is just something that is now inherent in this, right? There's no one-time decision or the answer to the questionnaire. There's an ongoing activity that you describe, which I think, and, and, you know, to Sean's point, right? The strategic point is this, if this is the way of life at a sort of large system level, we ought to be designing ways to make this cost effective, Right. There needs to be some level of standardization. I can't like go by gut feel. Do I trust this company because they sound better than this one? At the same time, it's in everyone's vested interest to make the cost of bringing on and managing a new supplier low. Right. I I want to have many suppliers, potential suppliers. So if one is not meeting my needs, I can move to another one. But I don't want that transition cost to be I have to spend a, a whole team spending months to figure this out. I want that cost of acquisition to be as low as possible. That means that implies a certain le- level of sort of universal data or standard f- formats or something that makes this possible. I love, by the way, Sean's uh, you know the aggressive approach, right? You give me all your tests and so. I have this mental image of the uh, end of the last Indiana Jones or the first Indiana Jones movie. Remember that? The uh, you know, who's looking at who has the who has the arc or whatever and the. The, they're wheeling that wooden crate into that giant warehouse. Top people are looking at it. You know? Exactly. Uh, this is the way it was. I won't mention which parts of the government, but there, I, I, I have the very uh, strong and well-informed impression of lots of documents going into places where no human being will ever look at them again. Yep. And uh, some people manage to justify that on, well, at least they produce data. So if something gets screwed up, we can go back and look at the data. Please. That is incredibly <laughs> inefficient, right? Let, let's... Yes. Uh, it's just so ineffective. But but this idea of how do I make this easier for everybody, right? We're struggling through this and we have a, you know, we're a security conscious company. We have a, a lot at stake here reputationally. You know, we have lots of security aware people in our leadership team. So we can do some things that others cannot. Yet 
they're struggling with the same problems. So how can we make, you know, is there, dare I say, the best practice or some way to help people sort of across the entire ecosystem be able to manage this kind of third-party problem, for example, without the same level of investment, right? They're just not going to be able to, to make it. So so part of what we're doing, I just want to, uh, so, so thanks, Stephanie. That's a great description of a great program. And, and I know that we're uh, proud of the work here, but part of what we're doing for our listeners is to, you know, we're, we're opening the doors a bit here, right? To share, as Sean said earlier, we, we live in this environment. We're, we're not, a, you know, on the sidelines here. We participate. We are interlocked with suppliers and complex partnerships. And so we have to live and breathe this activity in addition to our role as security practitioner and advice giver. And so we try to bring all these together at the Center for Internet Security in a, in a holistic way. And we're trying to share lessons learned to enrich our guidance, our practices, our controls, our services that we provide to others, but also present these as lessons learned. So I suspect, I think Sean will discuss this, but we'll have other episodes to explore some of the internal things that we have done uh, in an attempt to help others who are going to struggle with the same things, right? To help them uh, avoid some dead ends and you know get to the place where we are in a quicker, more cost-effective way. So I think, uh, Stephanie, you, you, it's, a, it's been great to have you on this episode, but I suspect we're going to have you back for others. And uh, for the listeners out there, again, we're always looking for your uh, feedback and your problems, the things that you're trying to solve, and uh, we'll do our best to bring information to you that will help you with that. Absolutely, Tony. Yeah. Now, this is going to be a part of a, a series on GRC. So we'll be doing governance, risk and compliance. And uh, obviously, Stephanie will be back um, for those episodes. Uh, we're going to be discussing uh, really common challenges that we see organizations have when, when it comes to building uh, an effective GRC program. And so what it'll do is we'll explore how those organizations can use both the benefits, the resources, and, and the tools that are part of a CIS Secure Suite membership and how they can overcome uh, these obstacles. I think there's lessons identified here uh, that we want to provide organizations so they can bring them into their own continuous into improvement program uh, and really then start to establish um, capabilities that they uh you know, that seemed daunting uh, at, at the onset, right? You know, manage all of our vendors and, and any respective new vendor coming into the organization. Oh, well, there's only a thousand, you know, that, 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 that'll be fine, but we can do that in a week. You know, it, it's these things that you have to approach and really where we get into this governance risk perspective is let's delineate. It's not all thousand, but maybe your top 10, org, you know, vendors, Probably they deserve a review, whether that's, you know, the amount of money we pay them or there's critical processes that we need to put into play that they supply or support. Well, then maybe there's that's where you start. And then ultimately the program grows and you get investment because one of the things that you'll see is um, as part of government governance, it reinforces um, ultimately this culture, this approach um, and thinking about this from a risk based process rather than gut instinct or um, flipping a coin, decision-making, those types of things. And then, you know, it starts to see traction. And, and what we've seen, right, you know, it was uh, um, just five and a half years ago when I came in and, um, you know, started the engine, as it were, and uh, put Stephanie in the driver's seat, and she's been uh, leading us down this road of success. Look at that analogy. I thought that was pretty good. But... <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Because <laughs> it's a journey, right? It's not a destination. Yeah. So we're, we're on this journey together. Anyway. <laughs> well played, John. Well played. <laughs>
No, thank you both for having me today and I look forward to coming back. Wonderful, wonderful. And thank you, Tony. I, I really appreciate it again. Uh, host with the most and we, we get to chat and review these things and, and the stories of your lessons are uh, ones that everybody um, basically needs to learn uh, within their uh, respective programs and journeys. So as Tony mentioned, um, we want your ideas, problems, podcast episodes, um, things that you want to hear about. So podcast at cisecurity.org. Um, make sure to subscribe to the channel in all the usual ways. Uh, and with that, thank you very much. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.